Hey, everybody. I would be excited to share a conversation with Julie Phillips no matter what, because she is Ursula K. Le Guin's biographer, someone Le Guin wanted as her biographer, someone who, for many years, had regular extended phone conversations with Le Guin from their respective homes in Portland and Amsterdam, and who is now working on the biography slated for 2026. But I'm particularly excited because Julie Phillips is also, like Le Guin herself, someone who has thought and written deeply about writing and motherhood, writing as a mother, and what that means both sociopolitically and also narratively. I would say that similar to the last episode with William Alexander about writing for children, where really, even if you thought you had no interest at all in this topic, in the end, Le Guin's philosophy around the child's intelligence proves crucial to understanding Le Guin's work overall, including her very adult novels. This conversation with Julie also reveals something essential to understanding how Le Guin wrote and why she evolved as she did as a writer. Not only the ways raising children while writing her most well-known works informed those works, informed the ways she did and didn't feel a part of the feminist movement of the 1970s, but also the ways she ultimately decided to revise her entire writing practice and aims by developing a philosophy of the mother writer a feminist philosophy that ultimately touches on everything from the shape of a story and the role of conflict within it to the importance of bodily autonomy for women and reproductive justice. To understand the way Le Guin's Hainish universe and Earthsea world change over time, one must understand Le Guin's own journey around gender, feminism, and motherhood and how that journey informs and changes the way Le Guin tells stories. If this is your first time listening to the Crafting with Ursula series, there is a wealth of past science fiction and fantasy conversations in the Between the Covers archives, with authors such as Nedia Korafor, N.K. Jemison, Sophia Samatar, Kelly Link, Carmen Maria Machado, Jeff Vandermeer, David Mitchell, William Gibson, Ted Chang, China Mieville, and the three conversations with Ursula K. Le Guin herself. And there are also some past episodes that focus on motherhood and writing. Two that most leap out to me are Sarah Manguso talking about her book Ongoingness and Sheila Hetty about her book Motherhood. If you're appreciating the series, and or the podcast overall, consider supporting this labor of love by joining the community of Between the Covers supporters. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode, full of things referenced in each conversation, discoveries made during my preparation for it, and places to go for more once you're done listening. And there are a ton of other potential benefits from the bonus audio archive to rare Le Guin collectibles 
to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode of Crafting with Ursula with Julie Phillips. The connection between what I do as a writer, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, that magic in Earthsea is word magic. Obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is the American-born, Amsterdam-based biographer and book critic Julie Phillips. Philip studied English at Swarthmore and has written and edited for many publications, from The New Yorker to The Village Voice, where, among other things, she wrote about films. She currently reviews books for Four Columns, the online website of art criticism, and about English literature for the Dutch daily newspaper Trouw. Her first book is the biography of James Tiptree Jr., The Double Life of Alice B. Sheldon, which was nominated for the 2007 British Fantasy Awards and the British Science Fiction Association Awards, and which won the Hugo Award that year, the Locus Award in Nonfiction, the Washington State Book Award, and the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography, as well as being named a Best Book of the Year everywhere from the New York Times to the Washington Post. Elaine Showalter for the Times Literary Supplement says, Riveting in its illumination of the psychological conflicts and contradictions of modern female authorship, Philip's insightful treatment of a writer who, like many women writers, concealed herself in order to tell the truth, makes this a thought-provoking and paradigmatic book. Bethany Schneider for Newsday adds, Possibly the best biography I've ever read, in elegant prose and with consummate understanding, Phillips shows us a life that was full, rich, and deeply contradictory. The complexity and brilliance of Phillips' treatment of Sheldon's gender and sexuality is this biography's most stunning achievement. Ursula K. Le Guin calls it an exemplary biography of a fascinating life. Never oversimplifying, never overinterpreting, Julie Phillips illuminates a formidably complex psyche without invading it. Since then, Julie Phillips was awarded the Whiting Awards Creative Nonfiction Grant to complete her book, The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind-Baby Problem, 
which just came out from Norton this spring. The book asks the questions, what does a great artist who is also a mother look like? What does it mean to create, not in a room of one's own, but in a domestic space? From Angela Carter to Audre Lorde, from Ursula K. Le Guin to Doris Lessing, Julie Phillips employs her skills of biography to portray the very different ways these writers, who are also mothers, answered these questions. Karen Joy Fowler says of The Baby on the Fire Escape, Before I met Ursula K. Le Guin, I had no personal models for how a woman with children might also be a writer. What I did have was the children. Here, with her customary clarity, with empathy, nuance, and acuity, Julie Phillips questions some of our most admired artists about the ways in which the creativity required by motherhood and the creativity required by art have thwarted and supported them. Chris Krauss adds, The Baby on the Fire Escape refutes all received ideas about creativity and absolute solitude. Julie Phillips examines the lives and works of artists who refuse to choose between intellectual rigor and motherhood, and finds it's the courage to claim their own centrality that defines them as artists. And Lauren LeBlanc for the Los Angeles Times. Phillips' book is not just a cultural history. It is a testament to endurance and devotion. The entwined work of mothering and creativity is a volatile but illuminating gift. Would that everyone could see it that way. The most recent Julie Phillips news is the announcement of the 2026 publication date of the biography of Ursula K. Le Guin herself, for which Julie is working on now. In the meantime, we are lucky to have her here with us today. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Julie Phillips. Thank you so much. It's really great to be part of this wonderful series. I really admire the previous episodes, and uh, I hope I, you know, I hope to add as much as I can. Well, before we talk about the writing mother in relation to both Ursula's life and her own writing about this very topic, talk to us about your first encounter or encounters with her work and also the ways your lives and the world have intersected. For instance, I know that at least partially the reason you are writing the biography of Le Guin was because she herself wanted you to be her biographer. So tell us a little bit about Le Guin on the page and Le Guin in your life um, as a person uh, before we uh, go into the writing mother? Appropriately, I first encountered her in the public library. She was a great fan of libraries. And um, I was 12 and I found uh, the tombs of Atulon. And I think it really opened my eyes to the ways in which you could discover your inner world in the metaphors of fantasy. And, you know, it's such a powerful image, the labyrinth for adolescence, I think. I was hooked like everyone else and went on to read all of the Earthsea books that were available then. And um, to read her short stories, there are still some of her short stories that, that you know, among my favorites faster than empires and more slow where somebody sort of becomes part of the plant life of a planet and it turns out to be his best place in the place where he's happiest that idea that you can 
merge yourself with things around you with you know with your environment that comes out so powerfully in fantasy and um I first met her when I heard her read when I was in college. She was extremely warm and accessible in my memory. She first she gave a reading of her poetry and then she met with students the next day and just sort of sat with us and asked questions. And um, I was the annoying one who put my hand up and said, um, why aren't there more women protagonists in your work? Um, and she was very gracious about. She gave a very gracious and unexpected answer, unexpected to me, which was, I wrote stories that were based on the stories that I knew, and I didn't know how to break out of that, and I had to learn how to do that differently. So a typical encounter with Ursula to have your eyes completely open to something that you didn't, hadn't thought about and didn't expect. And... Then I interviewed her for my biography of James Tiptree Jr. because she was close friends with, first with Tip, the man who she thought she was corresponding with, and then later with Alice Sheldon, the person who James Tiptree Jr. turned out to be. So she had a pretty intense correspondence with someone who she thought was a man and then was able as very few of Tip's friends were to transfer that friendship to Allie. And um, I showed her the parts of the book that were about her. So to ask her permission to quote from her letters. And she said something to the effect of Wow, there's so many ways you can write a bad biography, and this this is not one of them. And lucky Allie, and then at the end she said, uh, "If you would ever like to save me from the vultures, just ask." I love that. So you're tasked with quite the responsibility to save her from the vultures. A little bit, yeah. Although it's sort of it's a little bit damning with faint praise, I guess. But I think that it was modesty too. It was she didn't want to assume that she was worthy of a biography, even though I was, you know, like, yes, of course, immediately, you know, where do I sign up? And then had to kind of, I approached it very slowly because I felt so shy Mm. about this responsibility and about this request. And so I've actually been working on the book for a long time, first sort of figuring out how to approach it. And then I spent a long time interviewing her. I talked to her mostly on the phone, um, pretty intensively between about 2010 and I guess 2016, but then continued to talk to her and correspond with her, Mm. you know, right up until about a month before she died. Yeah. Well, the the subtitle of your latest book is Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind-Baby Problem. Um, Before we talk about Le Guin in particular, talk to us in a more general sense about what you mean by the mind-baby problem insofar as this problem becomes not only the topic of your latest book, but a set of questions that connects very different writers and very different mothers in the the baby on the fire escape. Mm Well, I feel like, you know, when I say the mind-baby problem, 
it's the problem of how do you have an intellectual life while also being responsible for children? And it's a very physical problem. How do you get the time? How do you separate those two things? It's a very practical problem. Who's, to care, who's caring for the children while you're living this intellectual life? And it's also a conceptual problem of how do you put mother and intellectual in the same space? How do you, you know, equate the two? How do you think about motherhood in an intellectual way, in a theoretical way? You know, you can theorize anything. You can theorize sexuality. You can theorize gender. But then when it comes to maternal subjectivity, what is that? And there's very little... There's so little thinking about it. I had such a hard time finding sources that I started to feel like it was a negative space. It's just a, a space that is very hard to conceptualize. And of course, Ursula talked about that in The Fisher Woman's Daughter and the difficulty of thinking about those two things at the same time. And the way that's, that that story hasn't really been told of the writer who is also the mother that that's, um, that there's an absence, you know, she talks about how her own lived experience isn't reflected anywhere that she looks. Her lived experience as a writer and a mother. She's like, you know, I need somebody to explain this experience to me, but there isn't anyone talking about this. Well, you have this great quote in your book from Margaret Atwood that I love that goes, if you're a woman writer, sometime, somewhere, you'll be asked, do you think of yourself as a writer first or as a woman first? Look out. Whoever asks this hates and fears both writing and women. But the mind baby problem, I think, isn't just a sentiment or a prejudice. And I, and I, I want to return to this more when we talk about abortion and, and contraception later in our conversation, but, but one thing you recount is Le Guin's pregnancy before marriage when she attended Radcliffe, where Adrian Rich was one of her classmates. Um, if Le Guin's pregnancy had been discovered, she would have been expelled for it. And if she had married her boyfriend, Norman, she would have also had to leave Radcliffe, which didn't allow married students. So the mind baby problem, the notion that a woman, as soon as she became a wife or carried a baby, that that couldn't or shouldn't mix with the life of the mind was sort of baked into school policy, essentially. And you even suggest that if you remained unmarried and unpregnant at Radcliffe, that the students were still on notice, um, that her class was even explicitly told by a dean um, that you're there to learn gracious living, um, the subtext being that, as you say, quote, their studies were only an interlude in the motherhood plot. Does that, does that spark anything for you um, around the mind-baby problem, if, the way this feels like it's actually maybe um, structurally baked in? Absolutely. I mean, almost all of the women I wrote about, and particularly the ones with an academic education, felt that they had always been told, you know, 
there is no, you can have babies or you can have books, but you can't have both. That was extremely explicit that there's no, you know, once you have had a baby, your mind is done for, which of course has everything to do with permission and nothing to do with biology or real reality. It has to do with permission from the people around you to continue having an intellectual life and the kind of support that you need to continue having an intellectual life. Yeah. Giving yourself permission is also crucial. I want to use as a portal into both the live life and the philosophy of Le Guin as a writing mother, the symposium in 1975 called women in science fiction that was updated in the early nineties with reflections by the same participants looking back on the seventies. For one, I think it captures two different moments in time within feminism and captures two very different moments in Le Guin's relationship to feminism herself, but also because it captures these two key figures in sci-fi that you know well, Le Guin and Tiptree at a time before they fully knew each other. Um, this symposium had three men, the organizer who was a fan, I think, and the way he curated and edited everything became a point of, of controversy and irritation throughout the symposium. It also had Samuel Delaney and James Tiptree Jr., who at that point everyone still thought of as a man, and because the symposium was happening by mail with packets of responses going back and forth over the course of many, many months, no one knew Tiptree, who spoke as if she were a man, even speaking about motherhood and gender and sexual differentiation and baboons, was in fact a woman. Um, the women included Joanna Russ, Ursula K. Le Guin, Vonda McIntyre, and others. It's really a wild read. People were not afraid to disagree, to be confrontational or exasperated, and it frequently feels very fraught when, for instance, when Vonda at one point says, as far as I'm concerned, you can take your translation and its assumptions, fold them five ways, and stuff them where the sun don't shine, that's kind of a par for the course comment. And the male participants do not come across very well to the women, uh, Tiptree included. Uh, um, they're taking up a lot of space for one, but also the, the content of what they say. And it really is Joanna Russ who, towards the second half, reaches out to each woman, wanting to hear more from each of them to gather the women together, for she'd been the one to invite Delaney and Tiptree but I wanted to start with Le Guin's comments as she looks back from the vantage point of 1992, back at the original interaction in the 70s, where she says that she was reluctant to revisit a dark time in her life or to realize how, quote, profoundly, fearfully deaf I was to some things people were trying to say to me. She continues by saying, I do see that I was intensely defensive because this stuff about uniting the masculine and feminine in quote-unquote balance was all I had to go on with, and it was threatened at its very basis by the real feminism expressed in the symposium, principally by McIntyre and Russ. I wasn't able then to understand that they were offering me a genuine map of the territory, a true one, 
the kind you keep and use. But the symposium wasn't wasted on me. It taught me. I did listen. I did hear when I could. I did begin to understand finally. Thank you, especially you, Vonda, especially you, Joanna, especially you, our lost Alice. So I guess as we talk today, I wanted to hold in mind this 1992 Le Guin and the 1975 Le Guin and all that happens in between. But I wanted to start with something in particular that I feel like might be a subtext of her defensiveness back then. Um, Yes, she didn't yet have a full-fledged, thought-out, feminist political position at that juncture in 75. But I guess I also wonder if part of her defensiveness wasn't this or wasn't just this, but also sensing that feminism at the time, at least in some strains, seemed to be rejecting motherhood and domesticity, uh, while Le Guin at the time was happily married, raising three children, that she didn't see a feminism that included her or feared that the feminism didn't include her. So I guess I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, because in a way it feels like her defensiveness might be more complicated than she's even um, putting forth. That's very true that she was defensive about being a housewife and mother in a genre science fiction where there aren't very many parents. And at a time when a lot of feminism was daughters rebelling against their mothers um, and against motherhood saying that, I think she said that motherhood was presented as the paradigm of brainless enslavement and uh, you know, that wasn't her experience. Her experience was that it was challenging and empowering and took everything that she had and was really rewarding in return intellectually and emotionally. And so she was not seeing herself reflected in feminism. She had a very supportive husband, so that wasn't the issue. Um, The issue was how do you think about writing and motherhood without subtracting status from the writing? How do you write about women's experience without subtracting motherhood and still have that be accepted as literature? You know, she used to refer to herself as a a Portland housewife, but that was also defensive. That was, you know, you know, this is who I am and accept it or not. But, you know, I'm not putting myself down. I'm putting out here who I really am as well as a writer. And if you can't cope with that combination, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. Well, in the baby and the, on the fire escape, you, you paint the climate of the sixties and seventies where de Beauvoir identifies motherhood as the source of women's oppression and mm-hmm. Shulamit's Firestone called pregnancy barbaric, for instance. And in at least one subset of this era's feminism, you say that mothers were seen as guilty of allowing themselves to be exploited. Quote, any woman who enjoyed traditional mothering was lying to herself. In your conversation with Claire Dieterer about your latest book, you you talk about how motherhood in our contemporary moment still has a conservative pull insofar as it 
pulls you back into certain structures and institutions by necessity that one might not choose otherwise. And, and while you don't explicitly name capitalism or the isolated nuclear family or the emphasis of the individual over the collective, there seems to be the subtext when you say that the path of least resistance can be focusing on the advancement of one's own child over the advancement of children collectively. But in Le Guin's last comments at the symposium, which she titled Final Deliberately Irritating Statements, where she says she isn't interested in writing John Wayne's wet dream, but with the genders reversed, which was seen as a dig at Russ's The Female Man, a, a statement Le Guin later was appalled for having said, and I think ultimately in the 90s agrees with Russ's defense of women's anger in a response to Le Guin at, at, in the 70s. But it seems to me like, like in so much of her work, this moment isn't just a learning moment for Le Guin, where she will ultimately, for many decades, re-enter her texts and expand them as her own analysis expands. But it also feels like a visionary moment for Le Guin at the same time, that she is both behind and way ahead, that she hasn't yet learned from those with a feminist political analysis, but that she's also speaking for a feminism that doesn't exist yet, one that doesn't see motherhood and pregnancy as inherently a capitulation, um, that she spoke into an empty space that has since been filled with books like yours. Um, I guess, did you, do you see it this way? Do you see Le Guin as, as being ahead and behind at the same time? Absolutely. I think that's really true. I think that one of the reasons she didn't rush forward into feminism is because it wasn't her feminism and she had to find a feminism that she could use, that she could make her own, that reflected her experience. And, you know, the fisherwoman's daughter was incredibly influential that came out in 1988 and, you know, certainly an influence on my book, both in the form of it in drawing on many women's experience and having it be this kind of polyvocal um, piece of writing and in insisting on the combination of women's experience as writers and as mothers, both in their real lives and in their work. And she was in the middle, she was still in the middle in 88 of thinking about how to write about women protagonists, what women's experience looked like, what um, was important to bring into her female characters. And uh, it's not too long after that, that she wrote uh, Tahanu, the next book of Ursi, in which she positions uh, Tenar as a um, mother who, through her mothering, learns about herself and becomes able to deal with a crisis that is greater than anyone else's powers. There's an Adrian Rich quote in your book that I think speaks to Le Guin's defensiveness that she couldn't yet name in the 70s. Rich says, to destroy the institution of motherhood is not to abolish motherhood. It is to release the creation and sustenance of life into the same realm of decision, struggle, surprise, imagination, and conscious intelligence 
as any other difficult but freely chosen work. And when I think of freely chosen work and the liberation of motherhood, it makes me think of this line of Le Guin's from the symposium where she says, all I know is that when anybody, male chauvinist or feminist, tells me that I should write about women, I just want to say, piss off. Don't go sticking any labels on my soul. And Joanna Russ answers, yes, 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 that's exactly it. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about, or more than a bit, about gender and Le Guin's writing in relationship to motherhood. But before we do, can, can we hear the opening section of the Le Guin chapter in your book? Sure. I think I swiped that uh, quote from uh, Karen Joy Fowler's essay, uh, The Motherhood Statement. Yeah, I love that essay. I know, it's wonderful. Yeah. About, in which she says that motherhood in literature is, in literary criticism is presented as the most obvious thing. And she says, no, it's the least obvious thing. It's the most complicated thing. It's the most unexamined thing that you can write about. Mm -hmm. In 1964, a 34-year-old woman and her family moved for the year for her husband's academic fellowship to a house in suburban California. Her two daughters are in school, but her son is a baby, so her days are not her own. Their subdivision has no sidewalks to push a baby carriage. There are no city buses. She doesn't drive. Even at home in Portland, Oregon, her mobility is limited to 15 blocks downhill to Safeway and back up again, about all she can manage with a stroller and a few bags of groceries. It's hard to go anywhere with a baby in the days before disposable diapers. On a cross-country drive one summer, she and her husband ran out of clean laundry. So they drove across Texas with a wet cloth diaper flapping out the window to dry in the wind like a white flag of surrender. She is starting to come back to herself after her most recent pregnancy, which she spent in depression and despair. She isn't unhappy as a mother. She feels more herself in the midst of a family, not less, and hasn't stopped writing. But she hadn't wanted a third child and was afraid a new baby would end her writing career just when she had finally found an audience. The birth made the depression lift a little and she loves the new baby, but she has the same problem all new parents have. There aren't enough hours in the day and it feels like there never will be again. Every evening after her husband has put the children to bed in their rented house, she does some work on a new novel, different from the one she's written before. By day, she suffers from anxiety and cabin fever, but at night, she follows the quest of a young man exploring a strange new planet. Dreaming up his adventures gives her a lightheartedness that has to do with letting go of high literary ambitions and enjoying herself. A journey across a planet with four moons on the back of a giant flying cat, that's one way to get out of the house. The imaginative distance from her daily life frees her up and gives her the inventive spark she needs. Her husband believes in her talent, respects her time, doesn't demand her attention, knows that writing and mothering both give her emotional balance. By the end of their suburban year, in the summer of 1965, her first science fiction novel, Rokanon's World, has been accepted for publication. Ursula Le Guin dealt with mothering and writing by keeping the two in separate spheres of thought. When she was tied down in her daily life, she sought her freedom in her imagination. Alice Neal and Doris Lessing used their motherhood as material, 
but Le Guin approached mothering and writing as two distinct projects that happened to occupy the same place and time. Nourished by the security of a family, she claimed authority by leaving home in her work, writing about male protagonists in invented worlds. Ambitious and proud, she wrote about the deeds of heroes while she limited motherhood's claim on her selfhood by becoming, in her fiction, a man. Where Lessing and Neil ditched the motherhood plot to raise children outside traditional marriages, Le Guin claimed a space of her own within it. For Le Guin, as for Lessing, it was the loss of her maternal self when her children left home that made her want to put the narratives of mother and writer together. But for a long time, she didn't know how to write about her own experience in a genre in which mothers are seldom subjects. She didn't see how a mother could be a hero. We've been listening to Julie Phillips read from her latest book, The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind-Baby Problem. So in this chapter, you, you suggest that Le Guin writes as a man, particularly in the first 10 or 15 years of her career, as a, a way to create an imaginative counterpoint to her life as a mother and homemaker. But I also wondered if you could perhaps compare and contrast Le Guin and Tiptree here. Ironically, Tiptree is the only person at the symposium who even brings up motherhood, um, bringing it up as a man. Motherhood and children are otherwise nowhere to be found in this get-together around women in science fiction. And because Le Guin thinks Tiptree is a man at this point, she isn't sure if Tiptree is being earnest or sarcastic uh, when, when Tiptree is talking about motherhood. But I get the sense from listening to interviews of you that when Tiptree is later ultimately outed as a woman and begins to write as such, it wasn't entirely a liberation to do so for Tiptree. Whereas for Le Guin, it feels like the move she makes over many decades toward writing as a woman is one of the most fascinating and endlessly giving aspects of her life as a writer um, and maybe a liberatory thing for Le Guin. But I, I'm curious about your thoughts, if you were to hold the two together and as two people who were men in different ways and then women in different ways. I mean, Le Guin's transition to writing from a female point of view is endlessly fascinating. And, you know, she said herself, uh, she probably would have stopped writing if she hadn't been able to do that. I think she was coming to the end of what she felt she could say about herself from a male persona, what she could, how she could talk about the world from a male persona. But I think she lost things too in that transition. It's not a hundred percent progress. It's just, it's different. It's different ways of looking. It's different um, bodies of experience to explore whether or not those should be different bodies of experience. I mean, I'm for mushing everything together and not keeping things separate. And and what about Tiptree's transition from writing from the male point of view to writing an, under a new persona? That was different because Alice Sheldon had created Tiptree as a persona to do her writing for her. And it was really explicitly a male voice and a male persona. And she strongly felt the loss of that shelter. I mean, it's an, I guess it's an extreme form of what 
Ursula was doing, but I also think that Alice Sheldon had a certain level of gender dysphoria that makes me wonder, you know, who the real person is and what the real gender of that person was, which puts that person, James Tipton Jr., Alice Sheldon, in a slightly different category of experience again than Ursula. And Allie didn't have kids. Allie wanted to have kids, but couldn't. An early abortion that became infected, apparently, made her infertile um, and was completely fascinated with Le Guin's motherhood for reasons that I think have to do with not having had that experience, wishing to have had that experience, which of course, Ursula completely misread as this kind of nosy man bugging her about what's being a mom like. And she would answer, you know, Tip would ask him very general questions. What's motherhood like? And Ursula would answer with her own experience as a mother, she would say, you know, I was, um, listening to my daughter's uh, cello concert with tears running down my face or, you know, I was listening to my kid coming up the stairs and uh, the, the other one kicking her and swearing and <laughs> these funny stories about her own life, which I think were liberating for her in a way too, for even though she was annoyed by the questions, I think she really enjoyed having a correspondent who was interested in her daily life, who liked her funny stories about making dinner for her family, um, who liked her as that combination of writer and mother. I think that was part of their bond. Oh, that's really interesting. I really like how you characterize her writing of male protagonist as not something simple or simply regressive. Um, you write in the baby on the fire escape, writing as a man had its advantage. It allowed her to keep her writing and her private self separate in her mind, to write in her fiction about people who were solitary, searching, alienated, learning to be themselves. And to extend this further, it seems that for Le Guin, it is more complex than simply having a limited imagination of how to write. Um, it feels like another example, at least for me, of being ahead and behind at the same time. Which, and there's not necessarily terms that I am totally comfortable with, but for lack of better ones, ahead and behind. For instance, even with Wizard of Earthsea, which you could view as a male hero's journey, it already is in so many ways a deconstruction of the hero's journey. The journey isn't an outward journey, it's an inward one. It isn't one of conquest and discovery, but of repair and self-discovery. But also, as Will Alexander said in my conversation with him about writing for children, he said that as a boy of 11, reading The Wizard of Earthsea, which was a foundational text for him, it was a shock to then eagerly pick up the second book, The Tomb of, At Tomb of Atuan, and find that 
the hero as a secondary character now who shows up halfway through the book and he had to now identify as a girl. Um, these examples, I think, in her so-called male phase are abundant. We, we have in Left Hand of Darkness a mad king who is pregnant or the dispossessed where the revolutionary thinker who inspires the anarchist society is a woman. Um, and you also write about other ways that Le Guin's life as a mother as well as her maternal depressions find their way into the narratives, most notably of Earthsea. And I guess I wondered if you'd just speak into that a little bit for us too, the way her, um, the part that she's keeping separate in her own mind is actually finding itself in the, in this other realm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't think there's any other protagonist that she identified with quite as much as she identified with Ged. And with Shevek too, which I think made it hard for her to then switch gears and write as a woman because she had put so much of her own search for self into those two characters. And um, you know, she told me that when she was writing uh, the farthest shore at the end of that book, you know, magic is draining out of the world and. Um, Ged has to go down into the underworld and cross back through the over the mountains of pain. And she said that that partly came out of her own depressions around the birth of her third child when she was afraid that she was never going to get any more writing time. She felt really strongly a lack of autonomy around childbirth, around pregnancy, and suffered from, you know, both, I think, in her physical self and inter in her intellectual self, from this fear of not being able to do the things that she needed to do, and that the resulting depression she wrote into her books as good. And sometimes I think that if she hadn't written male protagonists, she would not have been nearly the beloved author that she is now. Sometimes I feel like that if she had given all that experience to women, even now, I don't think she would have been taken as seriously as if she had, as she is because initially she created these powerful male characters. Hmm. Well, in the Le Guin chapter of your book, you also mentioned that in, in 1977, Ursula has a conversation with her agent about a crisis in her writing life, which you've already alluded to today, mm -hmm. that, that she couldn't continue to write from a male point of view, but that she didn't know how to go about um, moving forward in a different way. Yeah, even her mother was telling her that she should write about women, and she yeah. said, I don't know how. I don't know what to do. I don't know what how to have that kind of heroic experience as a woman. And I think what she did was to decide to step away from that heroic experience, which she, I think, had already experimented with, especially in The Lathe of Heaven, which is still one of my favorite Le Guin's because of that decision to create a protagonist who is not exactly passive, 
but who isn't in control of his own life and who ultimately wins by doing nothing, by deciding to do nothing. She told uh, Virginia Kidd, her agent, that um, she saw reflected in him the Buddhist saying, you know, in a crisis, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> well, when I, when I think of this, this moment where she knew how to write incredibly well, mm-hmm. she was at the top of her game, and yet decided she wanted to learn how to write entirely differently. And I juxtapose that moment with her introduction to the illustrated omnibus collected works of Ursi that came out the year she died, where she says in the introduction that she wasn't able to write an adult woman protagonist until 1990. I feel like this time period between 1977, the crisis, and the 1990 publication of Tahanu which re-enters our sea and embodies it in a different way. I, I myself particularly love this in-between era. It contains so many incredible stories, which I see under this lens of her journey from the crisis to the uh, adult female protagonist in Tahanu. Uh, for, like, for instance, Sir, about the secret all-woman expedition that discovers the South Pole to she unnames them where Eve removes the names from the animals that Adam gave them and then leaves the garden. Her novel Always Coming Home, which fully deconstructs the notion of a hero's journey. And it contains many of her iconic philosophical essays, uh, the carrier bag theory of fiction, the essay you've mentioned, which we're going to talk about, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, Space Crone, essays where she develops her very Le Guinian take on what it will mean for her to not only write as a woman, but write as a mother. And where we sort of get to trouble it out in real time with her, I think, in this period. I'd like to spend much of the time we have together talking about her philosophy of the writing mother. But before we do, I'd love it if we could spend a moment with the notion in your book of the baby on the fire escape, the title of your book, because it feels like One thing you and Le Guin share is the notion that a room of one's own is a great thing, but that many of these writers are figuring out how to write in the thick of things without a closed door, without that room, sometimes literally at the kitchen table. So tell us a little bit about The Baby on the Fire Escape as I I know it comes from something specific, but also as a notion, as a framing for um something different than a a room of one's own. Yeah, there's this really powerful idea that you have to be alone in order to write, you know, Proust in his cork line room and um, the Jenny Ophel's notion of the art monster, the uh, creator who is utterly devoted to the work. And Mother writers really trouble that notion of you must be alone because, you know, juxtaposed against this writer is solitary in her tower is, um, you know, Shirley Jackson, who's making plot notes while she's cooking dinner, or Toni Morrison, who's making plot notes while she's driving to work, or 
the writer Naomi Mitchison, who's making plot notes while she's walking her baby in the park. Um, there are so many different ways that you can write in a shared space and not in an absolute way, not in a, you know, there's not making an absolute distinction between your writing life and your maternal life or kind of waiting for that sort of feminist paradise where the men are doing their share of the work and therefore everything is fine. Even if you have daycare, even if you have that kind of time permission, it's still always a balancing act. It's still always improvisational. It's you're still patching things together and trying to figure out how you're going to a birthday party or, you know, getting last minute daycare so that you can go to your own, you know, give a reading. Um, there's always this improvisational, often frustrating, but also fruitful and generative balance between writing and parenthood. And I think I unfairly leave the fathers out actually, because I think at this point, fatherhood is a very similar balancing act. And the work is getting done just because it's not getting done in you know, periods of eight hours, but getting done for an hour at a time. There's still, there's room for thinking about that as a productive and fruitful writing mode. Can you speak to the actual anecdote where the baby on the fire escape comes from. Yeah, it's an ap apocryphal and uh, you know somewhat slanderous story about the painter Alice Neal, whose um, in-laws didn't approve of her being a painter and um, thought that that made her a bad mother. And they claimed that she had um, left her baby in her bassinet out on the fire escape of her New York City apartment while she was trying to, to uh, finish a painting in some versions that, you know, she was out there in the snow or whatever. But I think, I'm sure the baby was fine. But, you know, they're horrified at the notion that somebody is trying to do two things at once, that she's not utterly devoted to her child. You know, that is still a scary notion for a lot of people. Some of the criticism I got online for, about my book is, you know, this is a terrible idea for a mother to be an artist. A mother should be entirely devoted to her children and anything that takes her away from that is dangerous and will hurt the child, which is, you know, is something that women are still telling themselves because there is that it's still in the culture. Yeah. that anything, any moment that you look away from your child's potentially dangerous moment, even if you're sitting right next to them, you know, rocking them in their, um, you know, bouncy chair on your desk while you're writing. <laughs> well, as an entryway into discussing Le Guin's philosophy of the mother writer, let's begin with a reading from The Fisherwoman's Daughter, which could be viewed and which she did view as the culmination of all the thinking and writing that she had done in the decade after her crisis with her agent. And it's an essay whose working title was Crazy Quilt because it was often given as a talk that she would then revise and rework as she received feedback from one audience after another, sort of viewing it as a evolving collaborative work. 
And it's also one whose early origins she locates in Tiptree's words about motherhood written as a man in the symposium back in the 70s. And she says that really this essay begins with Tiptree's insertion of motherhood into that symposium. Yeah, this essay was really a um, model for me in that polyvocality in, you know, I included a lot of quotes in from various people in my book, because I felt like you can't account for everyone's experience on your own, you need other people talking. And the interlocutor that she quotes the most in this passage is uh, Virginia Woolf. Back in the 70s, Nina Auerbach wrote that Jane Austen was able to write because she had created around her, quote, a child-free space. Germ-free, I knew. Odor-free, I knew. But child-free? And Austen, who wrote in the parlor and was a central figure to a lot of nieces and nephews? But I tried to accept what Auerbach said because although my experience didn't fit it, I was, like many women, used to feeling that my experience was faulty, not right, that it was wrong. So I was probably wrong to keep on writing in what was then a fully child-filled space. However, feminist thinking evolved rapidly to a far more complex and realistic position. And I, stumbling along behind, have been enabled by it to think a little for myself. The greatest enabler for me was always, is always Virginia Woolf. And I quote now from the first draft of her paper, Professions for Women, where she gives her great image of a woman writing. I figure her really in an attitude of contemplation, like a fisherwoman sitting on the bank of a lake with her fishing rod held over its water. Yes, that is how I see her. She was not thinking, she was not reasoning, she was not constructing a plot. She was letting her imagination down into the depths of her consciousness while she sat above holding on by a thin but quite necessary thread of reasoning. Now I interrupt to ask you to add one small element to this scene. Let us imagine that a bit farther up the bank of the lake sits a child, the fisherwoman's daughter. She's about five and she's making people out of sticks and mud and telling stories with them. She's been told to be very quiet, please, while mama fishes. And she really is very quiet, except when she forgets and sings or asks questions. And she watches in fascinated silence when the following dramatic events take place. There sits our woman writing, our fisherwoman, when Suddenly there is a violent jerk. She feels the line race through her fingers. The imagination has rushed away. It has taken to the depths. It has sunk heaven knows where into the dark pool of extraordinary experience. The reason has to cry, stop. The novelist has to pull on the line and haul the imagination to the surface. The imagination comes to the top in a state of fury. Good heavens, she cries. How dare you interfere with me? How dare you pull me out with your wretched little fishing line? And I, that is the reason, have to reply, my dear, you were going altogether too far. Men would be shocked. Calm yourself, I say, as she sits panting on the bank, panting with rage and disappointment. We have only got to wait 50 years or so. In 50 years, I shall be able to use all this very queer knowledge that you are ready to bring me, but not now. You see, I go on, trying to calm her. I cannot make use of what you tell me about women's bodies, for instance, their passions and so on, because the conventions are still very strong. 
If I were to overcome the conventions, I should need the courage of a hero. And I am not a hero. I doubt that a writer can be a hero. I doubt that a hero can be a writer. Very well, says the imagination, dressing herself up again in her petticoat and skirts. We will wait. We will wait another 50 years. But it seems to me a pity. It seems to me a pity. It seems to me a pity that more than 50 years have passed and the conventions, though utterly different, still exist to protect men from being shocked, still admit only male experience of women's bodies, passions, and existence. It seems to me a pity that so many women, including myself, have accepted this denial of their own experience and narrowed their perception to fit it, writing as if their sexuality were limited to copulation, as if they knew nothing about pregnancy, birth, nursing, mothering, puberty, menstruation, menopause, except what men are willing to hear, nothing except what men are willing to hear about housework, child work, life work, war, peace, living and dying as experienced in the female body and mind and imagination. Writing the body, as Wolf asked, and as Helene Sisu asks, is only the beginning. We have to rewrite the world. That essay is just amazing. And I mean, that's only one amazing many. part of it. Yeah. Um, and she's saying essentially what Adrian Rich is saying too, that need to see that bodily and emotional experience reflected in literature, in women's writing, in men's writing, to have it be a normal part of life and not something that's set aside and policed and not permitted and not talked about. Well, in the part you read, I, I love the way she expands the notion of sexuality beyond sex and reproduction, mm-hmm. which she also does regarding menopause and in Space Crone, where she asserts that women are not embracing the third phase of life for women, but rather imitating the life condition of men once menopause starts. But that the third phase of life for women really is a new condition where she says, quote, the woman who is willing to make that change must become pregnant with herself at last. Um, but back to the fisherwoman's daughter, you, you posted a part of this essay on Facebook. The part has Mina Barrera excerpts in her book, Linnea Nigra, which also engages like your book with motherhood and writing and Le Guin also appears in that book. And I was recently watching a conversation between Hasmina and Kate Zambreno about Linnea Nigra, where Kate talked about the importance of making maintenance labor visible and the time involved in this labor also visible in writing. And I really liked this aspect of the essay, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, where Le Guin dismantles the notion of art happening by a self-isolating artist via great self-sacrifice. And so I'm just going to read a little to supplement what you read. This is a section where she's, she's quoting Joseph Conrad. Uh, this is Joseph Conrad speaking. For 20 months, I wrestled with the Lord for my creation, mind and will and conscience engaged to the full, hour after hour, day after day, a lonely struggle in a great isolation from the world. I suppose I slept and ate the food put before me 
and talked connectedly on suitable occasions, but I was never aware of the even flow of daily life, made easy and noiseless for me by a silent, watchful, tireless affection. And then Le Guin adds, quote, A woman who boasted that her conscience had been engaged to the full in such a wrestling match would be called to account by both women and men. And women are now calling men to account. What put food before him? What made daily life so noiseless? What, in fact, was this tireless affection, which sounds to me like an old Ford in a junkyard, but is apparently intended as a delicate gesture toward a woman whose conscience was engaged to the full hour after hour, day after day, for 20 months, in seeing to it that Joseph Conrad could wrestle with the Lord in a very relatively great isolation, well-housed, clothed, bathed, and fed. This, this making visible of this erased woman feeding Conrad, to me this connects to a whole bunch of other ways Le Guin goes about making visible the invisible. Like I think of her calling out Wallace Stegner in her essay, Disappearing Grandmothers, or fighting for the legacy of Grace Paley, or choosing to translate Gabriella Mistral, who's Chile's first Nobel Prize laureate, um, but the woman poet who no one talks about or reads in English, rather Pablo Neruda is the one who's getting all the oxygen, to mentoring new female writers in sci-fi and fantasy. Um, but I wondered what this makes you think of, um, if, if there's anything that comes to mind for you about making visible labor and time in this light. Yeah, she stole that quote, the Conrad quote from um, Tilly Olson's Silences, which is a very foundational essay about making the conditions of women's work and visible and what stands in the way of women's work. And it's always a combination, I think, of not only making it visible, but looking at the ways in which it is policed as well as suppressed to say, you know, one of the reasons it's not visible is because it's often not permissible. And there's a whole lot of, you know, you shouldn't have had children, you should have had children. When are you going to have another child? Um, you know, are you sure you want to leave your child for so long in order to get your work done? Um, this endless, endless um, opining of other people about motherhood. I don't think that's ever going to go away because motherhood is so foundational to the culture. I think that it is so very essential that the work of parenthood gets done, that the work of nurturing gets done, that other people in the culture are always going to have opinions about it. And it's really essential to be able to turn your back on that. And that was something Ursula was really good at. She said, I mean, she, she told me almost apologetically, you know, I don't really seem to have a lot of guilt about doing my work. 
And that seems to have really helped me in doing my work alongside my mother, not sitting around feeling guilty about the time that I wasn't spending with my children, um, not feeling guilty about what I wasn't doing, not listening to what the other moms in school were muttering after I said that I wouldn't go on the class field trip. <laughs> um, she also had an intense ability to concentrate. And I think that was extremely valuable for her. I think she could, one of her mantras for getting started writing in the morning, you know, she would send your kids, her kids off to school. And then she would say, leave the dishes in the sink leave the breakfast dishes in the sink. She would go up, she would start writing. She didn't have to ease her way into it. And then once she was writing, it had her full and complete concentration. And I think that is hugely fortunate and hugely helpful in getting the work done. But I think this ability to give yourself permission is maybe even more important to be able to set aside what everyone else around you is saying about motherhood and to say, I know that I'm doing it to the best of my ability and I'm doing this other thing. You say in, in the baby on the fire escape, what is the subjective experience of being a mother and why, despite a steadily growing body of writing on the phenomenology of mothering, does it still seem on a deeper level so unnarratable, undramatic, everywhere in practice, but in theory, nowhere. But I feel like Le Guin is asking these questions or similar kindred questions to the ones you you posed, and I'm quoting, with the carrier bag theory of fiction, for sure, asking, how can we tell the story of women, of, of the gatherers rather than the hunters, the work of the everyday, and what shapes might these stories take? Um rather than reshaping the experience into received forms that have been passed down through the millennia, primarily by men. But she also brings the domestic and maintenance labor into the realm of adventure, too. You pointed me to Shobi's story, which I had never read before, a short story that does this, and which you've written and delivered a talk on yourself. And I was hoping you could read a short part of it and then talk to us about Le Guin bringing motherhood and the domestic, even the house itself, um, out into space, for instance, or other uh, places out in the world. It's funny because she was, um, she told me once, um, I showed her part of what I've written, and she said, don't use the word anecdotal. Nobody will pay any attention anymore if you say anecdotal. And yet the whole carrier bag theory of fiction as an essay is a defense in a certain sense of the anecdotal of what isn't um, moving forward temporally, what isn't the narrative arc, but everything that happens around it, everything that maybe isn't an exciting story, but is a story nonetheless and worthy of being told. So this is a talk that I gave in uh, 2018, and it came partly out of my feelings about Ursula's death, which I was still, I think, in mourning for her when I wrote this story. And I was also thinking about 
her biography and the work of her being her biographer and the ways in which biography is very much a carrier bag form. I mean, it's very linear. It has a kind of backbone of time, but it's also very polyvocal. It's full of other people's voices. You're trying to, you have an obligation to bring forward the the voice of the person that you're writing about and to bring them to new generations. But you are also including the voices of everyone who ever met them. You are presenting this person as part of a really rich community of family, of, of fellow writers, of friends. And so I was trying to talk about that a little bit in this essay, and I ended up being very moved by the uh, Shobi story, and I'll tell retell the plot a little bit. It's a story about a spaceship that's on a dangerous mission to test an experimental new drive that will allow instantaneous transportation between worlds. The physics of this drive are so abstract that the crew start to suspect that it works on the, on the idea of travel. But their ship isn't named for a big idea. It's not called Enterprise or Endurance or Endeavor. It's just Shobi and its crew are the Shobis after their ship. And if you have an idea of what a starship looks like, the Shobi isn't like that. It's roomy, it's comfortable, it has living rooms and a high curved staircase and a library with a fireplace. The crew are a non-hierarchical collective who make their decisions by consensus. They come from the various planets of the Ecumen, from Terra, Anaris, Gethin, and Hain itself. Some of them are men, some are women, and the Gathenians, of course, are non-binary. The four Gathenians in the crew are a couple with their two small children, ages four and six. Two of the Terrans are a mother and her 11-year-old son. In other words, the ship is a house, the crew are a family, and their voyage is a story. The Shobi story is partly an experiment in how much real-life science fiction can hold. It's a carrier bag in the wind sense of fiction that isn't linear, isn't heroic that puts people and ideas not in competition, but in relation to each other. At first, it feels messy, kind of embarrassing, really. You have a randomly assorted space crew testing a drive whose workings make no sense, while their kids are laughing and sliding down the banisters. What kind of science fiction is this? But when Shobi travels to its destination, an uninhabited planet called M6340 Nola, disaster strikes and the story completely breaks down. The navigational instruments stop working. The crew become disoriented. They keep trying to behave like proper science fiction characters. They send down the lander, they take samples, but pretty soon they can't get their stories straight. They can't agree on whether there is a planet. They're not sure there's a ship either to keep out the dark between the suns. The ship's systems begin to fail and die. One by one, they give way to despair. They're lost. They're in the dark. Then a voice in the dark says, listen. Another voice says, we're here at the hearth. One of the crew lays a fire. Another lights it, and they all find their way to the fireplace in the library. They were nowhere, but they were nowhere together. The ship was dead, but they were in the ship. A dead ship cools off fairly quickly, but not immediately. 
close the doors, come in by the fire, keep the cold night out before we go to bed. Around the fire, the Shobis begin to speak. Where are we? Are we here? Where is here? What's the story? We have to tell it, recount it, relate it. Aston, how does a story begin? A thousand winters ago, a thousand miles away, the child said, and Shan murmured, once upon a time. One by one, they tell what happened, and gradually the systems start to hum. The lights go on. The ship comes to life around them, until at last one of the Shobis completes the story. They got lost, but they found the way. That gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I love that. Was that okay? I, to I totally cheer up when I read that story. <laughs> <laughs> I was very moved. Mm. Um, well, I mean, this notion of bringing the domestic or the hearth uh, out or and also of making maintenance labor, making maintenance labor visible makes me think of so many different things. Like I think of the collective child rearing and the dispossessed, but also the four-way marriages in her story, A Fisherman of the Inland Sea, the four-way marriage called the Sederetu, where each individual has two spouses among the four, one heterosexual and one homosexual, but also each child within the family is raised by both sets of parents. But even the ecumen, the consortium of worlds in her Hainish universe, which I guess you could compare to the Star Trek Federation. Um, so the ecumen in, in the left hand of darkness and the dispossessed and more, she uses a Greek word that means household, um, from one of her father's anthropology books. So even there, she's thinking of a hearth in space, essentially. And these things point to something she says in The Fisherwoman's Daughter, I think. where She says, quote, The artist with the least access to social or aesthetic solidarity or approbation has been the artist's housewife, a person who undertakes responsibility both to her art and to her dependent children, has undertaken a full-time double job that can be simply, practically, destroyingly impossible. But that isn't how the problem is posed, as a recognition of immense practical difficulty. If it were, practical solutions would be proposed, beginning with childcare. Instead, the issue is stated, even now, as a moral one, a matter of ought and ought not. The poet Alicia Ostricker puts it neatly. That women should have babies rather than books is the considered opinion of Western civilization. That women should have books rather than babies is a variation on that theme. This all made me wonder or suspect that as an American mother yourself, but one raising children in Holland, that perhaps you see this divide more clearly than 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 we might simply being in America. I wondered about viewing it as a practical question rather than as a moral question regarding childcare. At least I imagine the Netherlands having a very different relationship to motherhood than the United States, but maybe you could speak to that. I mean, like I said, I think that motherhood is policed everywhere in different ways. But I do think that, you know, socialism as practiced in Western Europe is a lot kinder to mothers than capitalism as practiced in America. 
And just having subsidized daycare was really huge for me in being able to continue doing my work in feeling that I had permission to do my work in getting away from that terrible equation. Um, if my work doesn't immediately bring in money, does that, can I set it against the childcare that's costing money? And is it right for me to continue when I'm not contributing the finance of the household because everything I do is being eaten up by the, the childcare costs? Just the notion that childcare is a community responsibility and the notion that mothers have a right to time, no matter what they do with that time, is just massive, is huge. It does a lot to counteract that kind of moral policing of motherhood that goes on because it says, look, this is normal. It's normal not to be with your child 24 seven for men and for women both. I mean, I think it's policed here in other ways. If you left your kid in daycare more than three days a week, people would be kind of disapproving and you were expected to have a part-time job rather than a full-time job, particularly if you were a mother. You know, the typical model here is that men work five days a week and women work three days a week. And that is kind of continually being discussed as to how desirable that is and why that is and wouldn't it make more sense to do it differently but but at the same time this notion okay you do have the three days is I think a really valuable one and the debate about daycare has been going on for so long in the U.S. and really needs to get a push behind it, but I think it would have to be in a whole, I think the conception of American society would have to be completely different before you could have that. Unfortunately, you know, Angela Garvis most recently talking about uh, in her book, Emotional Labor, Essential Labor is talking about, hey, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that we desperately need daycare. It's that women's time and labor have a value. And I think, yes, 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 this is exactly it. But then I think, when, how is this ever going to happen? How are you in America ever going to get to this point? I do not know. I don't know either. Le, Le Guin's defense of the housewife artist and her redemption of the housewife, I think, or defense of the housewife, reminds me a little of my discussion again with William Alexander about children's literature and its relationship to fantasy, how adult fantasy literature has sometimes tried to find respectability by denigrating children's literature, saying, don't worry, we aren't kitty-lit, but how Le Guin instead not only deepened the connection between the two in a complicated way, but elevated the importance of both together and separately children's literature and fantasy. And it feels like she does a similar thing with both sides of the housewife artist equation. For instance, in her Bryn Mawr commencement speech, calling housekeeping an art, the art of making order where people live, 
or in her 1992 reflection on the symposium where she says, some feminists at the time, speaking about the 70s, were, were talking about motherhood as if it was the absolute shit end of human existence and the paradigm of brainless enslavement, which wasn't calculated to rouse feelings of solidarity and self-confidence in a woman who had three kids and found the work of being their mother terrifying, empowering, and fiercely demanding on her intelligence. So I didn't talk about it. Who wants to listen to mother anyhow? But one thing I loved about your book was how how you explored the way the mind-baby problem wasn't the same for everyone. For example, Toni Morrison saying, Black women seem able to combine the nest and the adventure. They don't see conflicts in certain areas as do white women. They are both safe harbor and ship. They are both in and trail. Or the way June Jordan described her poems as housework, saying, What has been called women's work traditionally includes the nurturing of young people, maintaining a house, providing the wherewithal so that people can keep going. My work is closely related in purpose to the traditional work. It just takes a different form. In my mind, and I'm curious about your thoughts, Le Guin's thoughts feel much more akin to Morrison and Jordan here than to Sontag, Lessing, Carter, and the other white writers you profile, that perhaps Le Guin and, and Adrian Rich also, they seem to be engaging with the question in a way that seems closer to Morrison and Jordan in this regard. I, I was curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that Ursula felt really strongly that they could nurture each other, that I think that she really found in mothering, mothering and housework uh, a stability that helped her to write. She liked housework. She liked that groundedness that housework gave her. I think she loved to cook. She wrote really hard when she was writing. And then I think she just wanted that grounded place to come back to. And if anything, I think it was when she um, when she lost her mother role when her kids were older that it was much harder for her. Um, there's a quote where it's with the part in uh, Always Coming Home where she taught where uh, Stone Telling talks about how her life has kind of been a um, sort of the the that the best part of her life was the middle of her life. Stillwater and Little Boys and I made a household on the ground floor of Step, Seven Steps House. We lived in that house 14 years. All that time I had what I wanted and was contented, like a ewe with two lambs in a safe pasture with my head down eating the grass. All that time was like a long day in summer in the fenced fields or in a quiet house when the doors are closed to keep the rooms cool. That was my life's day. Before it and after it were the twilights in the dark when the things and the shadows of things become one. I love it that she sees her motherhood as her life's day, as the most fruitful part of her life and the heart of it. I mean, I don't know that she is speaking for herself, 
But it reminds me of her quote from uh, the painter uh, Kate Kovitz. Uh, I'm gradually approaching the period in my life when work comes first. When both the boys were away for Easter, I hardly did anything but work. Worked, slept, ate, and went for short walks. But above all, I worked. And yet I wonder whether the blessing isn't missing from such work. No longer diverted by other emotions, I work the way a cow grazes. So in this case, the cow grazing is this kind of negative, mindless work without blessing, work without the joy of having her children as part of her daily life. And I see that in Stone Telling, too, that the joy of her daily life in taking care of the children seems very clear to her. And the rest of her life before and after seems more shadowy, both more imaginatively rich and more risky and ambiguous. You know, we're talking about the domestic in her work, but there's a grandeur to it too. For sure. Like I'm very compelled by Morrison's notion of the nest and adventure being put together or, or Le Guin insisting on the artist housewife and this notion with Shelby's story of the hearth being literally in a spaceship. But when you start to look at this, this way, like the nest, the nest and adventure together, I feel like you start to see it everywhere, both the grandeur and the nest within the grandeur. Like for one, I think of uh, Le Guin's story, Sir, about the all-woman expedition that discovers the South Pole. Not only is there a pregnancy and a birth on the ice, but there is this great paragraph when they find a hut that is left by the previous expedition of men, an expedition that failed to make it to the pole. And they're sort of amazed by the state the hut is in as they approach it. And then as they enter the hut, this is the paragraph that I want to read. It really isn't part of a question, but it's just another place that popped up for me around um, the housewife artist. But here we are exploring something off the edge of the map. So they arrive at the hut. They're appalled by its state, and then they enter the hut. The interior of the hut was less offensive, but very dreary. Boxes of supplies had been stacked up into a kind of room within the room, it did not look as I had imagined it when the Discovery Party put on their melodramas and minstrel shows in the long winter night. Much later we learned that Sir Ernest had rearranged it a good deal when he was there just a year before us. It was dirty and had about it a mean disorder. A pound tin of tea was standing open. Empty meat tins lay about. Biscuits were spilled on the floor. A lot of dog turds were underfoot. Frozen, of course, but not a great deal improved by that. No doubt the last occupants had had to leave in a hurry, perhaps even in a blizzard. All the same, they could have closed the tea tin. But housekeeping, the art of the infinite, is no game for amateurs. I just think that's amazing and hilarious. I know, I love that. And I love that she um, says, so why is messiness more heroic? And straightening up is straightening up and that kind of professionality of keeping things ship shape is that not also part of the heroic work 
Yeah. And calling it the art of the infinite. Yeah. It feels it like is, such a. It is infinite. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I want to spend our remaining time talking about reproductive health care, uh, reproductive access and reproductive justice. Um, it was eye opening to learn just how recently contraception was both widely available and also affordable through reading your book. Um, it seems bizarre today to learn that Le Guin is given a gross of condoms as a wedding gift or that her mother who had a similar frame gets fitted for a diaphragm and sends it to her, but only because we don't realize the many barriers to access that existed. Um, she got married in France in 1953 and contraception was illegal in France at the time. And oh, wow. so that's why the French center gross of condoms because there wasn't anything, there was no act and why her mother sent her a diaphragm because there was no other access to effective contraception in France in 1953. And you have the, you have this essay, what, contraception meant to a century of women writers, which opens with this quote from Grace Paley about New York in the 30s. We all knew that birth control existed, but we also knew it was impossible to get. You had to be older and married. You couldn't get anything in drugstores unless you were terribly sick and had to buy a diaphragm because your womb was falling out. The general embarrassment and misery around getting birth control were real. I was, I was hoping maybe you could just share some other anecdotes from your book about contraception in this regard. There are a couple that come to mind for me, but especially now that we're, we've taken this gigantic leap backward in the United States around, um, and we're going to talk about abortion, but um, now these questions about access to um, the abortion pill or um, how emboldened are the Supreme Court about other things that we've taken for granted, but this is certainly not something that any of the writers in your book were taking for granted. Um, Absolutely not. The mother writers in your book were not taking contraception for granted. And I, I was wondering if any other anecdotes or stories came to mind. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote this chapter partly because I was always trying to kind of head off judgment on the women that I was writing about. And so I had to say, look, they had a lot of unplanned pregnancies. They had kids under circumstances that probably weren't really conducive to a stable life with kids and writing. That's true. They didn't have a whole lot of choices. Um, celibacy is not really a great option for most people, um, men and women. I was, I was astonished to find that latex condoms weren't available until the 1920s. They don't even get to be affordable until the 1920s. And then of course you have that um, wonderful court case, um, the United States versus one package of Japanese pessaries that is about whether or not you can distribute diaphragms through the mail. And the embarrassment is real of trying to access contraception of trying to use contraception, the embarrassment of saying no to a boyfriend is real. The loneliness is real. Audrey Lord thinking, well, I don't really enjoy going to bed with him, but 
I'm all on my own and who else is there? Um, and Le Guin later on, after she has her third child, goes to the doctor and says, you know, can you give me more effective contraception? And um, there really was an idea at the time, and this is the mid 60s, that women's bodies knew better than women's minds that women's accidental pregnancies were the children that they really wanted to have, but just didn't know that they wanted to have my mother and her cousin. I sort of brought this idea up with them and they said, yeah, of course, that's what people thought. And so Ursula went to her doctor and he kind of responds in the same way and says, what do you want? hundred percent certainty. And she says, you know, I looked at him and I said, of course, I didn't say you asshole. <laughs> she didn't swear very much. It was always startling in an interview when she would come out with something like that. She was, she held a grudge against that doctor for the next 60 years. Yeah. And rightly so. Um, and, you know, Adrian Rich, had an unplanned third child and she wanted a tubal ligation and she had to get a letter signed by doctors and her husband before she could get permission to this thing that she wanted to do with her own body. And uh, Alice Neal said, uh, in the beginning, I didn't want children, I just got them. You know, I, I should probably talk about abortion a little bit as well. I mean, Ursula Le Guin had an abortion, had an unplanned pregnancy, had an illegal abortion. Um, a lot of the women, almost every woman in this book had an abortion at some point, um, most of them illegal. And for all of them, I think it was a horrifying experience to get pregnant unplanned. It felt like a betrayal by their bodies. So getting an abortion was extremely important in regaining that sense of control, that sense of power over your life, which is also really essential for writing, I think. You can't write if you don't feel like you have, at least in some part of your life, enough self-determination, enough determination over your time that you're going to be able to keep going. And so I think it became really crucial for them to have that control over their fertility. And not just that, because I think we often look at it in terms of reproductive rights, but there's a broader concept that was developed in the black community of reproductive justice, which is not just control over your fertility, but in a negative sense, but also healthcare, the ability to have a child without it breaking you financially. Um, there is childcare, the ability to bring up children. There is living a living wage so that you're not forced into that time poverty where you are running around constantly from one job to the next and to your back to your children. Um, and also um, reproductive health care in the sense of making uh, fertility care uh, accessible and affordable so that women who want to have a child 
can afford to have a child. Uh, yeah, that feels like a really striking part of your book, how abortion played a, an important role for these mother writers, whether it's Susan Sontag or Audre Lorde or Grace Paley or Angela Carter or Le Guin, often illegal abortions that they survive. And this brings us back to Radcliffe, because Le Guin is faced with this impossibility, uh, a boyfriend who does not want a future with her. I mean, she has the the fortune of a family who's super supportive of her, who pays for it, and who also contextualize it uh, as something that would ultimately allow her to pursue her dreams and be a mother when she wanted to. Otherwise, she would have had to choose between a mind and a baby. Le Guin keeps her abortion secret from her husband for a long time, but when she finally begins to speak about it, she she writes and speaks about it a lot. Essays like The Princess and and What It Was Like and Speeches for Planned Parenthood and elsewhere. But you frame how important abortion is essentially for these mother writers as writers, but I think Le Guin also frames it as important for her as a mother that she wouldn't have had the children that she wanted if she had been forced to keep the child that she didn't want. That's absolutely true, that if she had had a child as an unmarried mother with this creep, that she would never have met her husband, Charles, she never would have gone to France. Um, she might have still become a writer. She might have done something completely different, but she never would have had the children that she loved so much that she did have, that she had with her beloved husband. And I think that that was a really painful thought for her, the thought that she might have missed out on that. In both your book and your contraception essay, you quote Adrian Rich, who says, we need to imagine a world in which every woman is the presiding genius of her own body. In such a world, sexuality, politics, intelligence, power, motherhood, work, community, intimacy will develop new meanings. Thinking itself will be transformed. And, and to go full circle around Le Guin's journey from writing as a man, and to writing as a woman. I, I love this quote from your book from Louise Erdrich, where she says, One day as I am holding baby and feeding her, I realize that this is exactly the state of mind and heart that so many male writers, from Thomas Mann to James Joyce, describe with yearning. The mystery of an epiphany, the sense of oceanic oneness, the great yes, the wholeness, there's also the sense of a self merged and at least temporarily erased. It is death-like. Perhaps we owe some of our most moving literature to men who didn't understand that they wanted to be women nursing babies. Which I think is just <laughs> such a fantastic quote, isn't it? I um, love that a lot. <laughs> Ursula really liked nursing, by the way. She really enjoyed it. Not everybody does sometimes if you're impatient and you don't, you know, you want to get on with your life. And it does, it takes a long time. And she said that she didn't mind that feeling of being slowed down. She said, I'm anxious enough the rest of the time. It was fine 
to sit here on the couch and nurse and feel a little bit slow. Well, before we go out with a final reading, I want to just say how incredibly excited I am after reading The Baby on the Fire Escape for your Le Guin biography. Um, I loved learning about Le Guin in relation to her own mother, who herself becomes a very successful writer before Le Guin finds much success at all. And after her children have left the house after menopause, this notion of the space crone is in a certain sense embodied by her mother. Yeah. Who said, oh, I just wanted to wait until you were all out of the house. I always wanted to write, but I thought I would wait. But she also seems or expresses some regrets at having started writing so late in her life. But more to the point of what we've discussed, I think what's really notable about your book, which also makes me excited about your biographies, is how you center the subject position of the mother in the book as a whole, which I think is still somewhat taboo, as you were saying. Like, even if the mother's still rocking the cradle but looking another direction, are mm-hmm. they going to be policed? And can can a mother's subjectivity only be judged through the outcome for their children? But what's really interesting about the way you do it, which I like with all of these writer mothers, is that you violate the taboo. You center the subject position of the mother and don't measure it based on outcomes mm-hmm. for the children. Mm-hmm. But you still but you still include we still get glimpses of the way the children are responding. So we see in the Le Guin chapter different coping mechanisms of the different children around what their mother has chosen as a mother and as a writer. And you, you've made it difficult to wait until 2026, Julie. I'll do my best <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> Is it hard to, to do that? Do you find the centering of the mother subject position to not have it like um, subsumed entirely by the outcomes for their children? Is that hard to do as a writer? Well, the hardest thing for me was about putting the mothers at the center was just to think about them as the protagonist of a story that was a real linear story and that wasn't just, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But what is the narrative of a maternal life was something that I really had difficulty with. And it was actually... I actually found the answer in a big argument that I had in my head with Ursula because she said that a mother couldn't be a hero. And I thought, you know, sort of like her, you know, when her friend said, uh, oh, you can't be a mother and a writer. And she said, why the hell not? And I thought, you can't be a mother and a hero. Why the hell not? Why can't you experience the same things that, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero experiences, you do go down into the underworld at some point in your mothering. Often there's something that happens that you can't cope with, that you have to dig very deep into yourself in order to come to terms with or to um, be the person that your child needs or to find the way to keep doing your own work, even if it's at a cost. Um, 
there is a kind of a hero's journey aspect to mothering. And it was only when I started paying attention to those moments when you know, women were pushed out of the center of their own lives and had to find their way back either in their writing or in their motherhood when they went through a difficult time, a, you know, kind of a dark night of the soul and had to come back from that. And whether their children enabled that or their writing enabled that return. Um, that to me was the narrative of a writing life, of a maternal life. There is, I think, there's a denial that mothers have a story, but I think that is the story. I think the story is of somebody who doesn't just take on this role of mother and there you are, which is basically what Freud said about mothers, but who is always becoming the mother that they need to be at that moment. And in, often in combination with a creative career that can be incredibly you know, fruitful and generative of new work and of new ways of thinking about your life. I wonder if she would disagree with you if you could have this conversation with her now. I don't know. I didn't come up with this until I think 2019. I wonder if she would argue against the possibility of a mother having a hero's journey, but would rather say um, what other journeys or what other shapes can a journey take other than a single subject protagonist going out having a conflict and then having a um, resolution of the conflict in that story structure. Like I'm just the notion of it being an inherited form created by the lives of men in a gender divided society across millennia. Yeah. And there are so many possibilities as she suggests in sure for um, collective heroism for you know, making art collectively. She loved collaboration. So she was already thinking of art as a collaborative and collective form. And there's no reason you have to have the solitary creator, whether they're a parent or not, alone in the tower. There's, you know, you can have the creator engaged in intense collaborative um, process. Well, let's go out with a, a final reading from your book. Yeah, so I talk a little about the journey that every writer, every artist has to make from private creation to becoming a public person, to having a public persona, to being someone in the public sphere. And one of the ways that Ursula did that was by giving talks. And one of the talks that she gave was The Fisherwoman's Daughter. In 1987, a woman in her 50s is standing on stage at a university, commanding the attention of her audience. She still lives in the same house on a hill in Oregon and writes constantly. But now she also travels around the country to teach and speak. All her children have left home and her eldest has made her a grandmother. Her Portland housewife disguise is worn a bit thin after so many books, awards, and honorary degrees, and she is much in demand as a lecturer. At nearly 60, she has become comfortable in the public sphere. These days, she often speaks about feminism. Several years ago, when she was asked to give a talk to an abortion rights group, 
She spoke in public about her abortion, breaking her 30-year silence. Before she did it, she broke a private silence by telling her husband her story. Today, she is giving a talk called The Fisherwoman's Daughter on writers who are mothers, who have refused to choose, she says, between creation and procreation. She warns, the difficulty of trying to be responsible hour after hour, day after day, for maybe 20 years, for the well-being of children and the excellence of books is immense. But it is not, she says, impossible. What must remain within the writer's control, she concludes, is not the time or place, but the work for the duration of the time available. A writer doesn't have to have a room of her own or the goodwill of a partner, though they both help. What she needs is a pencil, paper, and herself, the knowledge, quote, that she and she alone is in charge of that pencil and responsible for what it writes on the paper. In other words, that she's free, not wholly free, never wholly free, maybe very partially, maybe only in this one act, this sitting for a snatched moment, being a woman writing, fishing the mind's lake, but in this responsible, in this autonomous, in this free. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you today, Julie. Thanks, really enjoyed it. We've been talking today to Julie Phillips, the author of The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and The Mind-Baby Problem. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Julie Phillips' work can be found at julie-phillips.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula in the introduction from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Alice Evelyn Yang for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights and encouragement. Finally, the music you hear called River Song 
and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Kesh. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. And see you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Ursula.